Well, uh, this is a big morning. We've got a lot we're doing, and uh, we're going to be baptizing at the end of our worship service. Excited to do that. Uh, But we're also going to finish a conversation we started about four Sundays ago, a conversation that we began uh, called Yeah, But, and we're going to make our last installment on that this morning. And so if this is your, uh, maybe some of you have been here for each of these, some of you this is your first time, that's okay. It will all begin to, it would be just as confusing to the old timers as it will be to you, I'm sure. So uh, don't worry about that. Uh, let you know about the next couple of Sundays. Uh, next Sunday, it's because something special really each Sunday. Next Sunday, uh, Pastor Brian Hope is going to be here. Brian Hope Pastors Mission Church here in Walla Walla. They meet at Sharpstein's uh, Elementary School on Sundays. And uh, Brian and I are switching churches for the morning, and so Brian's going to be here next Sunday, and I'm going to be preaching at Mission Church, and uh, I know that uh, you'll appreciate hearing from Brian. He's uh, just a great guy, and he's doing a great thing at Mission Church, and we love what they are doing in our valley, and we thought it'd be great just to kind of share a little bit. And so, Brian, I know what he's going to be speaking on, and I won't tell you, but you're in for just a great study of Scripture. And uh, so it will be an encouraging and uh, building time for you as well. So uh, you give him a warm welcome when he's here. And uh, then the next Sunday, I'll be gone, and uh, Glenn Matlock will be preaching, and uh, I know you'll appreciate what he's got to say, and I'll tell you where I've been. If, if, if everything works out uh, when I am done, I'll tell you what I, why I missed that Sunday. We'll see how it goes first. Uh, yeah. And then the other thing I want you to know is the, the very first Sunday of June, we're going to start a brand new series. It's part of our Summer of Love, and part of the Summer of Love is going to be a study on Sunday mornings that I think you're going to really appreciate. And I'm going to have three other men who are going to be helping me uh, with that series. And it's going to be a time of growth and learning and encouragement. So we're just going to keep going this summer. And it's going to be a lot of fun, part of our summer of love. But today, for one more Sunday, we're going to take on another controversial subject that uh, keeps some people from following Jesus. That's what this conversation has been about, this thing called, yeah, but. It's for people who like Jesus but still have questions. Because... Uh, there are people who like Jesus. A lot of people say they really like Jesus, but they have this perception that there's a lot about uh, that a lot that comes with liking Jesus that they don't like, uh, baggage that they just can't get behind. And we've talked about some of these things over the last several Sundays. Baggage like Christians and the Bible and science. And uh, we, as we've looked at each of these subjects, we've seen that even though those are legitimate questions, they're great questions, very legitimate, especially in our culture today, they're worthy things to talk about, but, but uh, there's a lot of misinformation in how, that, how these objections are presented. There's a lot of one side of the story, and there are some really good answers to these questions. So it's really a lot harder to just blow off uh, following Jesus uh, because of these objections. And if you've missed any of these and you're interested in finding, you can always find them online or on your Trinity app. But there's one objection that has some real staying power. And it's a very powerful narrative in our culture. And we're going to dive into it this morning. And it's, we're just going to go uh, 90 miles an hour uh, this morning, so hang on. The objection is this. It's, very, it's a very powerful assumption in our culture, and it goes like this. I like Jesus. I know enough about him that I like the things he taught. And I, uh, he did some good things in the world. But the movement that he started has not followed in his footsteps. 
the church has actually done the opposite. I mean, Christianity has actually done more harm than good in the world. Uh, Religion is basically what's wrong with the world in the first place. If there wasn't religion, the world would be a lot more peaceful place. I've heard about all the things done in the name of religion and all the things done even in the name of Christianity. And because of that, I'm out. I can't get behind Jesus because I don't think religion is really that good for the world. Well, this is a real obstacle for some people. It's a, it's a real hindrance, and it keeps them from legitimately considering who Jesus is and what he calls uh, us to. It's a powerful perception, and there are some people who would love for you to think this. They would love for you to do nothing more than just buy into this idea. There are men like Christopher Hitchens, who's written a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. That's the subtitle. How Religion Poisons Everything. And here's what he says. Organized religion is violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism, tribalism, and bigotry, invested in ignorance, and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women, and coercive toward children. Now, I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to say in between services, I had a young man, part of our faith family here at Trinity, come to me. He's taking classes at CC. He has an English class at CC, and he gets this handout that uh, basically uh, in... English class lists all these things that are wrong with faith, and it's, it's a list kind of like that, you know, kind of like what we just what we've just seen. And uh, I mean, this is this is a, a very common kind of perception. Uh, there's another guy named Sam Harris. He's another atheist atheistic writer, and he calls religion the most potent potent source of human conflict, past and present. Another author says religions have given us stonings. Witch burnings, crusades, inquisitions, jihads, fatwas, suicide bombers, and abortion clinic gunmen. And here's a Nobel laureate. This man, Steven Weinberg, he won the Nobel Prize in physics, no less. And here's what he says. Anything we scientists, speaking to his fellow scientists, anything we scientists can do to weaken the hold of religion should be done and may in the end be our greatest contribution to the world. He's, as a scientist, saying to other scientists, the biggest difference we may make in the world is not science. If we could just do something to loosen people's grip, uh, uh, adherence to religion, that may be the best thing that we'll be able to accomplish. And then there's this famous atheist, Richard Dawkins. You hear his name a lot when these kinds of subjects come up. And he says this, The great unmentionable evil at the center of our culture is monotheism. From a barbaric Bronze Age text known as the Old Testament, three anti-human, anti-human religions have emerged. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Well, there you go. Some people want you to think this. And, and you may not even have really thought this uh, yourself, but you hear these kinds of statements. You're like, these are smart people. These are people who know a lot, and they must be right because... I don't hear anybody talking about how they're wrong, and so you just buy into it. These, these, these statements become an obstacle to your own ability to evaluate who Jesus is on your own and make your own decision. And you say, wow, I just want to be on the safe side. And to be on the safe side, I don't want to join a movement that poisons everything. So just to be on the safe side, I'm just going to sit on the sidelines because 
Christianity, maybe it actually has done more harm than good. Well, it's important to talk about this. One of the first things I want to say is there's been a common thread every Sunday. There's been a common thread. And the the thread is this. These statements are wildly exaggerated at best. And what bothers me about it is these are people who want to come off as scientists and academics. That's who they that's who they try to, they portray themselves by their academic credentials as scientists and academics, but, but then they talk like middle schoolers, you know, and they make these wild exaggerations and overstatements and misrepresentations and uh, hope that nobody calls them on it. And that just, I just want to remind you, that's present in, in these statements, not just these, but in so many, that you have to be a critical thinker. And you have to be willing to look beyond the statement and find out more and not just take these statements at uh, face value. But it's true that that some people really do struggle with the idea, hasn't Christianity done more harm than good? And so we need to deal with it. And there is a kernel of truth in this statement. And that's really probably the first thing we have to do is acknowledge there's a kernel of truth in this statement. Uh, That religion is a source of conflict around the world and Christianity is included in that. Uh, there have been times in the history of the world where people have, under the banner of Christianity, oppressed, abused, and killed. In the name of Christianity. There have been times uh, in history during the times like the Inquisition or the Crusades. Uh, Although even those periods in history you have to uh, look at carefully and not just accept the statements of the same people making these other exaggerated claims. You have to look at them and, and, and uh, evaluate them, but it's true. You can't get around it. Uh, in history, this has happened, and it even happens today. Every now and then, not that uncommon, you have someone who performs, carries out some act of violence or some repulsive, uh, makes some repulsive statement, and then invokes the name of Christianity. And it happens today. So yes, it's true. Some, uh, there have been times when, when awful things have been done in the name of Jesus. And even though that doesn't represent true Christianity, and even though many times the statements about these events have been exaggerated and overstated, there is a kernel of truth to, to this accusation. But the, the truth is broader than just this. Because... Uh, Pretty much every movement the world has ever known has been prone to violence and abuse. Every human institution and organization, whether it's been a faith-based movement or a non-faith-based movement, whether religion has been a religious movement or not a religious movement, pretty much every movement and institution in the world has been prone to violence and excess. And what do all these movements and institutions have in common people humanity and this indiscriminate pervasion of violence into every uh, human movement and institution make might just make you think hey you know maybe the the problem isn't the faith element maybe the problem is actually the human element in all of these things and that's why pastor tim keller says this We can only conclude that there is some violent impulse so deeply rooted in the the human heart that it expresses itself regardless of what the particular beliefs or what the beliefs of a particular society might be. So maybe it's a problem with us 
and everything we do. And actually, that represents the Christian worldview. That represents true Christianity that, that we acknowledge that man is so fallen that everything we're a part of, even the church, which is supposed to be a different kind of organization where God is at work and, and he's uh, in the process of reforming and rebuilding, even the church is flawed in that way. And so Christianity is honest in, in acknowledging and owning it and actually has a problem to deal with it. So violence and oppression and abuse is part of every human movement and every human institution. The difference, so there's an important distinction we have to make. The difference is that in some cases, violence and oppression is the fulfillment of a worldview, and in other cases, it's the failure of that worldview. Now, I'll explain that in a minute, but I want to restate it again. It's an important distinction. In, in uh, this, to, to evaluate a movement, you have to evaluate, is this violence and these behaviors, are they the fulfillment of this worldview, or are they the failure? An example is uh, Hitler's mass execution of Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and the mentally retarded. That was not Nazism falling short of its beautiful vision for the world. That was Nazism actually fulfilling its beautiful vision for the world. You see that? That was the, these mass killings were actually the fulfillment of their atheistic uh, survival of the fittest worldview. And so uh, you actually have this worldview that expresses itself in violence, and that's the fulfillment of that worldview. The uh, oppression between the classes and castes in India uh, that keeps hundreds of millions of people in poverty, that's the fulfillment of a worldview. That's the natural outgrowth. Of Hinduism. The natural outgrowth of Hinduism is people are born into the level of life that they deserve because of their behavior in past lives, and you don't mess with that. They got to work out their karma. You don't let them work out their karma, they got to start over again. So you just let the poor be poor and do their best. So the, it's actually the fulfillment of the world, their worldview, this oppression. The second class uh, status of women in Islamic cultures is the fulfillment of their worldview, of uh, the, the place of women. The 20th century was the most violent century in the history of mankind. Uh, in terms of raw numbers, people killed, and also in terms of percentage of the population, the 20, 20th century was the worst ever. Over 100 million people were killed as a result of war and violence in the first 50 years alone of the 20th century, the century we just finished, modern mankind. And almost all of that was the fulfillment of worldviews. It was the fulfillment of uh, Nazism and the fulfillment of communism and humanistic thinking that accounted for most of this de these deaths. It wasn't Christianity that caused this. It was actually the opposite. And it was not uh, it was not the failure of their worldviews that this happened. It was the fulfillment of their worldviews. But for Christianity, it's different. Oppression and violence with Christianity is not the fulfillment of its worldview. It's the failure of its worldview. It's an aberration. These aren't people who are living out Jesus' teachings. These are people who are not living up to Jesus' 
teachings. And that's an important distinction to make. When, uh, when people do harm in the name of Christianity, you've got to make this distinction. Uh, it's not the fulfillment of Christi- Christianity's worldview. What I mean is this. Just because someone claims Christianity when they do something repulsive doesn't mean they are acting Christianly and in accord with the teachings of Jesus. It doesn't mean they're actually fulfilling Christianity. So, just because the Ku Klux Klan burns crosses on lawns doesn't mean that they're acting Christianly when they do it because they use a Christian symbol. They're just co-opting a symbol of the Christian faith. They're not living out its teachings. Some people think that taking your faith seriously, anyone who takes faith seriously, they autom- it automatically leads to fanatical behavior. Well, that only depends on what faith you're taking seriously. Some faiths, you take them seriously. Maybe you do end up acting uh, in a way that is repulsive and, and wrong. But that's not true of Christianity. There's nothing in the teachings of Jesus. There's nothing in the teachings of the Bible that can get you anywhere close to that. Some people say, well, that guy's a fanatic. And what they mean by that is he takes his faith really seriously. And it leads him to do things that are repulsive. Someone doing repulsive things in the name of Christianity is not taking their faith seriously. They are not taking it, they are, they're not taking their faith seriously. They're not taking it seriously enough. These people aren't better Christians or truer Christians because they act in these ways. And that's often the way that it's framed. Often the way it's framed is if you are a true Christian, you're going to do crazy things. You're going to do things that, that are repulsive and violent and coercive because that's what it means to take faith seriously when actually the opposite is true. If you take following Jesus seriously, you're going to be a good citizen. You're going to be a source of winsomeness and good and positive influence on your culture. And you're going to work through differences. It doesn't mean you're going to roll over on every subject and just... uh, uh, It doesn't mean you're not going to uh, resist and speak truth, but it means you're going to do it in a way that's loving and in a way that's winsome and in a way that honors people in the process. So, there's a distinction to make between the fulfillment of a worldview and the failure of a worldview. And while it's true that there are times when Jesus' followers have fallen short of the mark, the truth is the world is a much better place because of Jesus' followers. The whole world, almost every society in it, is better off because of Christianity. Instead of being a corrosive society in the world, Christianity is actually the most positive and empowering and enlightening movement that the history of the world has ever known. Now, let me give you some beautiful examples of that. One of those has to do with the value of human life. When Jesus came on the scene, there are so many illustrations of this. It's just, it's easy to find. When Jesus came on the scene in the first century A.D., this is just one example of how the church has valued human life. When Jesus came on the scene in the first century A.D., he entered a world where babies were regularly killed. It was a regular practice of the Roman and Greek culture to practice infanticide. So that is the killing of a baby in the hours or the days or the weeks after they were born. They would take these unwanted babies. It was just a normal occurrence, especially if they were weak or deformed or female. And they would take these unwanted babies, perfectly viable children, 
And they would slit their throats or they would drown them or they would just leave them somewhere and starve them to death. It was the regular practice of the Roman and Greek culture. And it wasn't just practiced in that culture. It's been practiced around the world throughout history in India, in China, in Japan, even in the Americas. And this is the world that early Jesus followers entered. And when Jesus followers entered this world, when Jesus came on the scene and people began to organize themselves around following him, they began to advocate for weak and helpless. The weak and helpless of society, including babies. And throughout the ages, uh, followers of Jesus, it's been followers of Jesus who have opposed infanticide, followers of Jesus who have opposed child abandonment, followers of Jesus who have fought for the value of human life from cradle to grave. It's Jesus' followers who have done this, Christians who've led the way in raising the value of human life. So just the value of human life alone is different in Christian culture because of the presence of Jesus' followers. Another example, beautiful example, is adoption. Everybody loves adoption. Everybody loves it. It's a beautiful thing. So who are the people that you know who adopt? Not the celebrities, because you don't really know them. But the people that you know who adopt. Who are those people? You look around in the adoption world, and you find the majority of people who adopt orphans are motivated by their love for Jesus. They're Jesus' followers. Everybody loves adoption, but Christians are the ones who are doing that. If you're like, oh, well, how do you know that? Well, get on the internet and look up research and see if you can find, uh, easy to find, George Barna, Barna Research, who uh, researches uh, some of these kinds of trends, says that Christians are three times more likely to consider adoption. And they're two and a half more time, times more likely to actually pull the trigger on adoption and adopt children into their family than the rest of uh, our, our culture at large. Two and a half more times. And it's not just true today, it's been true throughout history. Christian, Christians have always advocated for orphans, orphanages, godparents, orphan trains. Those are all Christian innovations. It's no different today. Orphan adoption would, would, uh, would diminish to just a trickle in the United States and around the world if it wasn't for Jesus' followers who are motivated to give their homes to, to uh, children. And I didn't find statistics on this, but I'm sure, I'm sure that is true also in the, in the realm of foster care. I'm sure the same holds true. And this advocacy for kids is not just something that takes place in the United States. It's not just American Christianity, but uh, around the world. I mean, I've been in India multiple times, and I've seen with my own eyes the, the, the disregard for children, except among Christians. And Christians even, I mean, Christians with very little resources. Their house is as big as your kitchen. Or maybe your kitchen and, you, and a bathroom. I mean, that's about the same. And they, they have their own children, but they still welcome children into their homes. Children of all ages and treat them as their own. That is a Christian phenomenon around the world. It is not every culture that does that. It's, it's another beautiful difference that Jesus' followers make. Not only have Christians stood up for value of human life and children, but, the, but uh, women 
Listen to this statement. The birth of Jesus, this is a quote, the birth of Jesus was the turning point of the history of women. That's a quote from an historian. Uh, When Jesus came on the scene, the oppression of women was just the norm. Women were controlled, women were subjugated, women were used for sexual purposes and had few of the freedoms that men enjoyed. Uh, Men could have multiple wives, multiple sex partners, but women would be killed for adultery. Then you read the Gospel of Luke and you read about a man who comes on the scene who treats women differently. He honors them, he has conversations with them, he develops meaningful relationships with them. That man's name is Jesus. And you see the effect that he has on women. Then you keep reading from the book of Luke, uh, Luke to the, the, the book of Acts, the early church, and you see again the prominence of women. And time after time you read when Paul goes to a new place and he teaches and, and brings the good news of Jesus, that Jesus brings repaired relationship with God and meaning to life, that, that it's women who respond. Luke, over and over, in the book of Acts, the historian says, a number of prominent women also responded. You know, you see that phrase over and over. So that in the early church, the first few centuries of the, of the early movement of Christianity, 60% of all Jesus' followers were women. Why? Because women found in the church a place of honor and equality and protection and value. And that's been true throughout history. You look at other cultures in China where they practiced for centuries the foot binding. The, you know, they'd wrap up women's feet, try to keep them as tiny as they could. And, and even though the rest of the body would grow, the foot would be uh, bound so that it couldn't grow. Terrible deformities, supposedly supposed to be for the purposes of, of being attractive, you know, making women more attractive. And uh, uh, actually a very oppressive practice. And it ended in 1912 thanks to the influence of Christians in India. Uh, a practice called sati, where, is, where if the husband dies, they will take the husband's dead body and they'll put it on the cremation fire and they'll burn him. And then they'll take his wife and they'll put her on there too. Why? Because she's no good anymore. Her husband's dead. What good is she? She doesn't have a reason to live anymore. So, so uh, again, that practice put to an end the result of Christians. See, here's the thing. You don't hear this very often, but the truth is some worldviews burn widows. Some worldviews rescue widows. Sometimes you hear people say, oh, Christianity just goes into a place and imposes its values. Well, there are some cultures that need to replace some of their values with some Christian values. One final example, the end of slavery. Slavery, uh, the time of Jesus, a lot of slavery practiced not the same as it was practiced in uh, the Americas. you know, a couple millennia later, but it was practiced and began to die out thanks to the presence of Jesus' followers after Jesus came on the scene. And then you come, you pass a lot of uh, time without, without the same, there has always been slavery, but without the same level of uh, slavery until the discovery of the new world, and they discover the new world, and all of a sudden you need, a, you need, a, you need cheap labor. And so the, the slave practice began to uh, pick back up un, until it was ended. And it ended in Great Britain first, and then in in the United States. Slavery ultimately fell in Great Britain thanks to William Wilberforce, a Christian who was motivated by his faith to stop slavery. And then ultimately it was ended in the New World. 
uh, including America, thanks to Christians. And you don't hear that. What you hear about is that there were Christians who, tr- who defended the practice of slavery. And that's true. There were Christians who defended the practice of slavery and tried to use their Bibles to do that. But ultimately, ultimately, it was also Christians who put a stop to it. One historian, Rodney Stark, says this. He says, although it's been unfashionable to deny it, 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 it it's actually been fashionable to deny it. That's a typo. Uh, the abolition of New World slavery was initiated and achieved by Christian activists. Tim Keller says the same thing. Slavery was abolished because it was wrong, and Christians were the leaders in saying so. I could go on. I've got two big fat books that you could look at if you wanted. Uh, One is called uh, For the Glory of God by historian Rodney Stark. Another one is called How Christianity Changed the World. Both of these are big fat, like they're dictionary fat books. And they take different subjects and show how how Christianity influenced uh, for good the culture that we live in today. Charity, compassion, liberty, and democracy civil rights and free speech, science and discovery, labor and employment, hospitals and health care, literacy and education. It's Jesus followers, the church, that has been the driving force behind these movements for good. And take Walla Walla just as a specific instance. What's the name of that, what's the name of that place where they take care of homeless people? Oh, yeah, it's the Christian Aid Center. And what about that place that advocates for abused women, the YWCA? What's that stand for? Well, the Young Women's Christian Association. What about the hospital in town? Oh, you mean St. Mary's, the one that's owned by the Sisters of Providence? No, I mean the other one. Oh, General Hospital, the, run, the one that's run by the Adventists. I mean, do you see a pattern here? The problem is we live in it and we become so used to it that we don't understand it's why things are the way they are. That we live in a culture that has benefited so greatly from the presence of Jesus' followers, we don't even notice it anymore. Now, I could go on, but I hope that you're beginning to see that far from being a corrosive influence, anyone who says that is not being honest, they're not being fair with the facts. Christianity is the most positive, enlightening, and empowering movement that the world has ever known. Now, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that Christians are always uh, that we're the only good people. That's not what I'm saying. It doesn't mean the church doesn't fail. Nope, doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean Christians are always right. And doesn't mean we're always first to get it right either. Sometimes we're playing catch-up in this world where things are changing. Sometimes we're playing catch-up uh, with people who don't know God but, but have found the right way. And we're playing catch-up in, under, in understanding some of those things. And it's true that some atheists are better people without God than some Christians are with Him. That's true. But it's undeniable that the world would look very different if it wasn't for the positive influence of the church, not only would the world look different, your life would look very different. Your own life would look very different. The things that you enjoy, the freedoms you enjoy, the equality you enjoy, it would look very different had you grown up in a culture where that were not true. Had this culture that we live in today, had it not been influenced in significant ways throughout its throughout its lifetime, and even before uh, the founding of our country by the church. 
The truth is, uh, we just don't recognize it because we don't recognize it because we live in it. And it's become so assumed that life would be like this, that we can't even recognize it's the presence of Jesus' values that the world we live in looks like this. Here's one last quote. I want you to see this. Uh, Christian ideals have permeated society until non-Christians who claim to live a decent life without religion have forgotten the origin of the very content and context of their decency. We live in it. It's hard for us to see where it came from. But it came from the teachings of Jesus. Now, it's not thanks to us. This message is not meant to say that Christians have it all together. Actually, the opposite is true. It's God who's done these things in the world. This message does not mean that that Jesus' followers are great. What it means is that Jesus is great. He's at work in the world, and he can take people who are flawed and imperfect and and, uh, broken to the core, and he can restore them and use them for good in the world. And you can actually get in. If you like Jesus, and you can actually get in on some of the good that he's doing in the world by becoming one of his followers. We spent four Sundays talking about these different kinds of objections, and today is just one of those. But what I'd like you to see, even if, even if this is the first message you've heard from this series, that's okay. What I'd like you to see is that, is that there are reasonable explanations to these things. So that, that really following Jesus is not filled with intellectual problems. It's really filled with will problems. Our own choice, our own desire. That, that many times we're just throwing out smoke screens because... We don't want to come to grips with who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And what it really boils down to is each of us choosing for ourselves. And what my encouragement to you, don't let someone else make this decision for you. Don't let someone, uh, an academic with a, who has an agenda for you, tell you how to think. Okay? And don't let me tell you how to think either. You find out for yourself. Just get both sides. Do some of your own uh, research. You don't have to be brilliant to do that. There are great resources. We have one. You're welcome to borrow those books that I have, but we, all, we have a resource we'd love for you to pick up this morning called The Case for Faith. It's on the guest services table, and all you have to do is pick one up and bring it home with you, and it, and it talks about some of these very same questions that we've been addressing today. So that's my encouragement to you, that, that uh, God is at work in the world through Jesus, His Son, You can have a repaired relationship with him and be adopted in his family just by putting your confidence in Jesus as the one God sent. That's the most important thing we teach at Trinity. That's what we're celebrating when when we're going to do baptisms here in a minute. My encouragement to you, don't let anyone else make that decision for you. You make that decision for yourself. If we can help you uh, process that and think through some of those things, we would love to have that conversation. Write it on your blue card. Let us know how we can help you take your next step. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful to you. We're thankful for truth. We're thankful, uh, we know that truth matters and and that it can be discerned. And uh, we're thankful for how you uh, are at work in the world. We know you have a plan for the world. This is not just uh, some kind of uh, happenstance that that the world exists and we exist in it, but that you exist behind it. You've created it. You love us and you sent your son, Jesus to die so that we could know new life.
so that we could have our sins forgiven, so that we could have this brokenness that's at the core of every one of us. We can have it restored over time and someday perfectly. That we can have a purpose for living. My prayer is for those of us who are Jesus followers that we'll live this out in its fullness. And that we'll not be a part of the failure of Christianity to reach its vision, but instead we'll be part of it, accomplishing that. That we'll be pictures of how you work in the world. And for the person here this morning who's undecided and hasn't yet decided what they're going to do about Jesus, that you will help them to see that there are reasonable answers to their questions. If they just would stop and, and interact with you, that you would assure them of the truth of Jesus and how much you love them and want them to join your family by trusting Him. I pray that you'll be with us as we get ready to do these baptisms. Looking forward to that. And that you'll continue to be at work this morning. We ask through Jesus. Amen.